let's turn now in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 as we continue our study of God's Word. I, I did want to note that in these days of winter, when there is sickness of different kinds going around, um, you know, if you have a day or a time, you know, where you're just particularly discouraged or struggling, I invite you to call me, text me, but call me. And I, I would love as your pastor, along with the elders, t- to take a moment and pray for you. And don't, don't be embarrassed. Um, I, when I was sick, I emailed the brothers and I said, please pray for me because I'm pretty discouraged. And, uh, you know, biblical Christianity, you're not a you're not a piece of concrete. You're, you're a living person, and uh, there are times that are hard. So, um, really, just want to extend that to you. Please don't, you know, don't live your your Christian life alone. And um, if if we can be of any encouragement to you, just on a rough day, we want to we want to do that. Okay. Um, encourage you to surround yourself as you can with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, to encourage one another. This morning we come to a significant passage in Matthew chapter 16. In some sense, it's, it's, the, it's the highest point yet in the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, we want to begin this morning in verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 20, but we're going to take a few weeks on this passage because it's so significant. And This morning I want to really zoom in and focus with you on just what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's give our attention now to God's Word, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask for God to help us by his spirit. We've already prayed, O God, that you would help us as Dave prayed for but we do pause after the reading of the Bible, before the preaching of your word, to acknowledge that, as Dave did in his prayer, we, we need you, O oh God, to do a work in our hearts and our heads that only you can do, both in the heart and head of the one who preaches and those who listen. Make us to know your Son this morning, we ask in his name. Amen. Christ is very possibly the most misused word in human history. 
Think about it. At least in the English language, Christ is perhaps the word that is most used as a blaspheme, as a curse, more than any other word. You hear Christ as a swear, as used of exclamation, of surprise, as just a filler. But not only in the world, but even in the church, there is profound misunderstanding on just the significance of this word, of this confession, Christ. This morning, I want to take a few moments with you and examine this confession by Peter, and Peter is speaking at this time on behalf of the twelve. So it's not merely Peter's confession that Jesus of Nazareth, born to Joseph and Mary, conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, that this Jesus is Christ and Son of the living God. And then, God willing, next Lord's Day, we'll examine the second half of this passage and what Jesus means by saying that Peter is this rock upon which the church will be built and so forth. We're going to look at that language and see what that means. But as Christ is perhaps the most misused and misunderstood word in the English language at least, it it behooves us this morning to look at what the Scriptures say. And as those who are Christians, Christians, to understand afresh the significance of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. In verse 13, we learn that after a time of ministry, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus, by this point in the Gospel of Matthew, is is around two and a half years into his public ministry. Significant amount of time has passed. He's been with his men, with his disciples. He has been preaching, teaching, healing, feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000 interacting with the hostile opposition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And by this point, there has been more than ample evidence of who he is. And Israel, as a whole, both in its population, the Jews, the citizenry, and its leadership, by this point, have largely rejected Jesus. And the obvious biblical testimony to who he is as the Christ. And so more frequently at this time, Jesus will take his disciples just outside of the borders of Israel. And this is in the northernmost part of Israel, just to the north above the border in a Gentile area. You can see the name there. It's, it's named after Caesar, a Roman emperor, and Philippi, a son of Herod. This is pagan territory. And it seems that perhaps to give his disciples and himself a little time away from the crowds and the criticism and the hostile resistance of the religious leaders, Jesus again takes his disciples out into pagan territory. This is a beautiful setting. Here in northern Israel, it's about oh, 15 or so miles apparently above the Sea of Galilee. And it's at the foot of Mount Hermon. And in this time of year, 
Uh, we are privileged in this part of central New Hampshire. If you get up on the right spot in the hill, you can see one mountain way in the distance with a white peak. And what is that? Mount Washington. Uh, there are spots where you can see just the peak of Mount Washington covered with snow at, at uh, roughly 6,000 feet. I, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact uh, height. I'm embarrassed as a New Hampshire native. I should know that exact height. And the climbers among us are just rebuking me right now in their minds saying, uh, I can't believe he doesn't know. But it's, it's around 6,000. I say that because Mount Hermon in this uh, to, the very, to the north of Israel, to the north of Caesarea Philippi, is around 9,000 feet high, covered with snow. It's beautiful. I mean, it dominates the area. And so this is the setting. It's a majestic, beautiful setting. And sadly, just outside of the borders of Israel, in a pagan territory, where Jesus comes to the question. It is the question not only for the citizenry of Israel, the Jews, not only for the Gentiles of that day, not only for every man and woman in history past and in the culture around us, but for we who are sitting here this morning. Who is Jesus? That is the question of the ages. Who is this Jesus? Peter, when asked, uh, uh, rather the disciples, rather when asked, in verse 15, Jesus, uh, rather 14, I'm sorry, in 13, he says, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples respond, some say John the Baptist. You, you remember that maybe Her- that Herod, when he heard about the miracles of Jesus, Herod automatically assumed that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. John the Baptist was a great prophet of God through whom God apparently had performed some miracles like the prophets of old. So the people had a concept of resurrection, of renewal. There is a prophecy that Elijah would return in the last days before the great coming of the Messiah in the day of the Lord. And so some said, Jesus, maybe he's the fulfillment of the prophecy that Elijah would return. Or verse 14, 14, Jeremiah, though he was despised and hated in his own day, hundreds of years later, Jeremiah was revered even though his message was misunderstood. And so some apparently said, well, maybe Jesus is Jeremiah come back. Jeremiah had a ministry of rebuking Judah and Israel of his day. And Jesus, of course, clearing out the temple and calling the religious leaders to account was, had very much like Jeremiah, a ministry of rebuke and correction. But these were all ideas and answers that fell short of the truth. And really, verse 14 condemns the generation of Jesus' day. For they had the Scriptures, they had the prophecies, concerning the coming of the Messiah, the, the promised King of, and Lord and Savior of Israel. They had clear prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, both in the law, the first five books, and in all of the prophets, and in the Psalms. This was their book. It was read every Sabbath in the synagogue. It was revered. They knew these scriptures, the testimonies of what the Christ would be like. And yet, here was 
a descendant of David, Jesus, son of Mary, son of Joseph, among them, performing miracles, exercising authority, flawless, impeccable in terms of his sinlessness. No one could bring a charge against him, his character evident, and yet they failed to recognize the blatantly obvious that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecies. So the speculation of verse 14 is not innocent. It is not because they didn't have enough information or enough evidence. It is condemning. They could conceive that Jesus of Nazareth was possibly John the Baptist resurrected. They could conceive that he was even Elijah, the great prophet of old. They could conceive that he was Jeremiah. They could conceive of these things, but they would not allow, on the whole, even the entertaining of the idea that maybe, just maybe, this Jesus was their king. Their king. Sinful man, sinful woman doesn't want a king. We're, we're actually okay with prophets and preachers because they tell us the truth, they, they, they tell us God's word, but in and of themselves they actually don't have necessarily the authority of a king. They, they tell us about God, they tell us of a king, but they themselves don't have the right to tell us what to do. The king does. And so there is within the sinful heart an antagonism towards anyone claiming to be king and lord over us. So even Israel, beleaguered under the oppression of the Roman government, under wicked King Herod, needing relief, oppressed by Satan and by demons as they were in that culture, even when their Messiah, their promised King, was standing right before them. The impulse to reject rule, the sinful impulse, was so strong that they would entertain and conceive of Jesus being anyone or anything except their King. That's what Messiah essentially means Christ. If you're wanting the word, when Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, and he's answering on behalf of the group. He's kind of the spokesman here. He says to Jesus, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the remainder of our time this morning, I, I simply want to examine with you what is the significance of this, these titles. Christ and Son of the living God, especially Christ. For us, we're used to the word Christ. We, we've sung about Jesus Christ this morning. We've, we rightly use His name in our hymns and in our prayers because that is, after all, 
His title as given in the Scriptures. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. And yet, for us today to understand the significance of this confession, we have to do a little bit of work to understand the significance. I want to go back for just a moment. If you, can, you can turn there if you like. If you don't, it's okay. I'm going to move rather quickly. But to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. In the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and when He created Adam and Eve, it is very significant at the beginning of the Bible that God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, in His image. And therefore, created in God's image, among all of the creatures that God made, there was only one creature who would rule, and that was to be Adam and Eve. Verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing. Let them rule. Let them rule. God created the heavens and the earth to display His glory and in particular, His kingship and rule. That He is God and there is no other. And to make known the glory of His kingship, God created Adam and Eve as vice-regents, as you will, a a mini-king, a mini-queen, a reflection of His kingship and then their dominion and rule and authority over the creatures of this earth, they would make known and reflect the glory and the magnificence and the majesty of the reign of God, the kingship of God. Of course, Adam and Eve, deceived by Satan, the usurper, rejected the kingship of God, when they rejected His law and His command, which was not onerous, it was not oppressive. He creates an earth, He creates a garden, which is beautiful and lush. I mean, all they have to do for dinner tonight, what do you want for dinner tonight, honey? I don't know, which tree do you want to go and grab some delicious fruit from? I mean, it, it was just a... Can you imagine before the fall, the beauty of the garden? God creates it all for them, just gives them one command, this is one tree, you don't touch. Because with that one command, God reflected that Adam and Eve were not the ultimate king and queen. He is. And Adam and Eve rejected that kingship, rejected the reign of God, and the world then was plunged into rebellion against God. Of course, God was not put off of His throne. He is God. He does not change. He has been king. He is king. He always will be king. You, Even that phrase sometimes when when in the past I've heard evangelists say, well, you need to make Jesus Lord. Oh, I, I don't like that phrase. Uh, you will never make Jesus Lord. You just need to deal with the fact He is Lord. And all you can do is either recognize it or deny it now. But the day is coming when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the poll numbers don't make Him who He is. God is who He is. So Adam and Eve rejected the kingship of God. The world was plunged into rebellion. Time went on, as you know. The ages unfolded and God still held out, though, the promise of one day when the kingdom of God would be 
revealed and evident on earth again. And God primarily did this as He called Israel out of Egypt. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Egypt. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called Israel out of Egypt. And then He appointed a king over Israel. Would you turn with me for a moment to 1 Samuel verse 16? 1 Samuel verse 16. The word Christ, as you're turning there, the word Christ is Greek for Hebrew word Messiah. They are the same word, same concept, Christ, Messiah. Messiah means anointed or anointed one. That is what it means. And we know that certain priests in Israel's history were anointed. The high priest was anointed with oil. We know that even some prophets were anointed or considered God's anointed ones. So the concept was when this oil was poured over this this man's head, that this individual was set apart for a unique role in relationship to God and his people. And in 1 Samuel verse 16, we see Samuel here is grieving over wicked King Saul. Saul had been anointed as king over Israel, but he rejected God and was disappointed. And so, verse 1 of chapter 16, God said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And if you would go down to verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So David was set apart by this anointing with oil to be God's appointed king over his people, Israel. Then as we fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7, Though the word anointed does not occur here, this is absolutely pivotal in us understanding just who is Jesus is. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David, an eternal covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 and verse 13, God said to David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I, says God, will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom, God says to David, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised to David an irrevocable covenant that there would be a descendant of David who would ultimately reign over Israel and the world forever. Of course, Solomon was the initial son of David. He was also the anointed king over Israel. But this covenant promise as we know that Solomon sinned, as we'll learn in our study of 1 Kings in the evening. 
we know that it ultimately pointed forward to this seed that God speaks of to David, this one who will reign on the throne of David forever. This is at the heart of the Old Testament, the restoration of the kingdom of God on earth through a descendant of David. We see this as you want to turn now to Psalm 2. We were in Psalm 2 in our reading just last Lord's Day. And this morning, as, this, as Scott read Psalm 3, Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 really belong together there. They are really messianic psalms, as so many of the psalms are. You, you, you may think, uh, you know, in Psalm 3 this morning, this language about being smitten on the cheek and shattering the teeth of enemies. And, you know, we're thinking, I, you know, the commute to work is bad, but I don't know if it's that bad. You know, I, I, you know, as we read the Psalms, we do read them and we identify with them, but we need to understand that frequently some of the Psalms are speaking of the Messiah's prayer to God. And in Psalm, so the, does Jesus Christ have enemies? Did they abuse him? And in the last, I mean, in these last days, does Christ and the truth of Christ, the reign of Christ, is it opposed? Absolutely. And so in Psalm 2, God says, verses 1 and following, let me read. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now, God is not asking a question there because he, he doesn't know why. You know, I, this just isn't going the way I'm, I thought it would. Why, why isn't this? No, that's not the question. God is scoffing and mocking there at all opposition to his anointed one. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah. That's the word there. His anointed. That's the word. Against the Lord and His anointed, the Messiah saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. This is a psalm that speaks of God's anointed one and of his future reign over all the earth. Notice that this Messiah is not merely Israel's king, but God has appointed the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, to be ruler over all the earth. God says, Verse 8, or rather the Messiah then in verse 8, the anointed one says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He, that is God, said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, we know that the son is eternal, one with the father. This sense of begotten is a sense of enthronement, of installation of the Christ. Ask of me, says God, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. In other words, the Father has promised to the Son to give Him the entire earth as His inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Go down to verse 10. God says, Therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. 
for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see these two titles in this psalm too? The Lord's anointed do homage to the Son. Peter's confession, you are the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, Son of the living God. They have Psalm 2 emblazoned into their minds. This isn't the only text that informs their confession. But when they say you are the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, they are referencing this language here. They understand that Jesus of Nazareth, they, they don't, maybe the disciples don't understand it yet, yet Jesus' union with the Father. They don't, they don't understand the, the full-blown Trinitarian teaching, one God, three persons, but they are understanding that this Jesus is, is not just another of Messiah's kings in Israel's history. He is, he is the promised one and has a unique relationship to God as his unique son. Turn to Psalm 89, another messianic psalm. Again, we're examining the significance of the titles Christ and Son of the living God. In Psalm 89, verse 20, God says there, I have found David my servant. Psalm 89, verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have messiahed him. I mean, it, it anointed him. The word messiah, that anointed, it's against the same. I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm will also strengthen him. So God calls this one that's prophesied his anointed, his Messiah, just like in Psalm 2. And yet, the world is in opposition to God's anointed. Verse 51, the end of the psalm. The people are, the, the psalmist here is praying, Oh God, this is what you have done for us. This is your history. We have sinned against you. And yet, in spite of all your promises, the people of God are under duress. We are opposed. The kingdom of Christ is opposed. You know, we, we cannot kid ourselves. The, the, the gospel, and at the present moment, it would appear from external insufficient witness that the gospel and the church in at least this little part of the world is not making great advances. It, it seems as though God is, in some sense, giving over this region to, to judgment. He's reserving mercy that the gospel is being preached anywhere here this morning. But there is not love for Jesus Christ. There is not love for His commands and for His ways which are good. There is resistance and resentment and hatred and opposition. And as, we, as Dave alluded to uh, this morning in his prayer up in Canada, this is opposition not just to sanity. This is opposition. These laws that are passed are in opposition to Christ, to God. And so in verse 51, we see here 
that the enemies have reproached the Lord with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. This Messiah, the anointed one whom God has has given his oil upon. In other words, this is not just another king in Israel's history. This is the Messiah, the anointed one, and the Messiah is reproached by the peoples, opposed by the peoples. This anointed one is the promised king of Israel and the promised king of the world. I want to read just one more passage in Isaiah 61, verses one, sorry, verse 1. This is actually referenced in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus cherished this passage. He read it. He loved it. He understood it as informing his identity. And he said there in Isaiah 61, verse 1, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, set me apart to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. There are so many more passages in the Old Testament that we could go to. But I hope that this little study helps us understand that when Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? That is the question of the Bible, really. Who who will God appoint as king over all the earth? Who will God appoint to reign over not just Israel, but over all the nations, all the peoples? For this is the revealed will and plan of God. Who is it that will have the right to reign with a scepter? Who is it that will save his people who are humble and look to God? And who is it that will come one time and trample on his enemies? Rule with a rod of iron, as Psalm 2 says. Who is it before whom in the last days every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess as Lord and only Lord. Do you see the significance of this title, Christ? This is, this is the title. This is the anointed one. This is the promised one. This is the one who will reign over all the earth, including you and me. And so, Jesus asked in verse 16, verse 15, Who do you say that I am? There's a pause. The disciples are there. They've been with him now for over two years. They saw, they've seen his character up close. Remember, they've walked with him. They've talked with him. They've seen him when he's hungry, when he's weak. And they've never seen him sin. They've never witnessed a sinful attitude or behavior in him this entire time. They know He's holy. They have witnessed Him not only heal people, raise the dead. They've witnessed Him still 
and command the, command the waves and the wind to be still. And after all this time, as Jesus asked the question at the foot of Mount Hermon, that lofty, beautiful white peak in the background, in pagan territory, named after a Caesar over in Rome and a piddly little son of Herod named Philippi. He looks his disciples in the eye and says to these 12 men, who do you say that I am? And as I said, there's a pause. And this isn't the first time that Peter and the other men have been thinking about it. And Peter speaks up as their leader and says, you, you, Jesus, you are the Christ. The Christ. You are the one that has been prophesied since the opening chapters of Genesis. You are the one that Moses prophesied of. You are the one that the prophets foretold that David spoke of in the Psalms. You are the descendant of David. You are the anointed one that God has poured out His oil upon, full of His Spirit. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the King of ages and of the world. This is the high point of the Gospel of Matthew at this juncture. And it's no accident that it's almost in the dead center of the Gospel. The whole witness has been building up to this. This is the whole purpose that Matthew writes this Gospel, is to demonstrate that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ. He's Christ. And He is Son of the living God. Son of the living God. All men and women created in the image of God in some sense are His children. Paul references that in his sermon in Athens. He he references that all men and women made in the image of God are in, in that sense God as our Creator, our children. But of course, we know that it is only by faith in Christ that we become adopted sons and daughters of God, children of God. We have a unique relationship with God. But when Peter here confesses Jesus as the Son... He's referencing Psalm 2 and other passages which spoke of a unique one. He has a unique relationship to the world. As Messiah, He is King of the world, King of all men and women, representative of God and His authority. And as Son of the living God, He has a relationship with the living God that no other man has and ever will have. He is the only unique begotten Son of God. He is Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of God. He is truly man and He is truly God. He is the divine Son. He is the Christ, Son of the living God. It is this confession. I won't leave you hanging too much. This confession is the rock upon which the church is built. Roman Catholic Church says it's Peter. We'll look at that a little bit more next week. Peter, in all his wobbling, (laughs) even after he was an apostle, he is not himself the rock. It is this confession that he speaks of. The church is built, according to Ephesians 2.20, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, their confession concerning Christ. 
that Jesus is Christ and Son of the living God. There's absolute clarity. There is no confusion about Jesus in this regard. It is the testimony of the Bible. And this term Christ, as we've examined, He is not just the little king of Israel. He is not just king of someone's heart. He is the king who has come and is coming to reinstate the kingdom of God on earth and rule and crush all opposition and establish His kingdom world without end. There is no question. The evidence is plain. The biblical witness is plain. The only question is the question that Jesus asked. And he, it's before each one of us this morning. Who do you say that I am? Now, it's rather easy for us to just roll off if we're used to church and Christianity. Yeah, Jesus is the Christ. But we've examined the significance of Christ this morning. And the text is before us this morning and it's probing every one of us. Is that who we think Jesus is? Really? Christ, anointed one? Messiah? Do I live my life as though Jesus is that kind of king? Do I live my life in acknowledgement that he is my king because he is the king? Do I understand that Jesus, by right of his being Christ, has every right and authority by God to, by his word, command me? Not suggest, not advise, not counsel. Command me how I am to live. Is that the Christ we confess? Because that is the only biblical Christ. Is the Christ of the Scriptures. It's an awesome confession. And it is the confession of the church. It is the confession upon which the church is built. That Jesus is Christ. And it is this confession that the church is called the pillar and support of the truth. If we waver on the authority and the kingship of Christ in the church, we cease to be a biblical church. Which is why you have buildings and congregations all over the world and the land that may still call themselves a church, but cease to be a church when the moment they answered this question wrong. They maybe answered it technically. Oh yes, Jesus is the Christ. They maybe have Jesus Christ in their name on their sign, in the church name. But long ago, they in their hearts rejected the biblical teaching about the Christ and therefore have rejected Jesus as the Christ. We dare not do that, loved ones. There is no other. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and we need to examine ourselves and ask our, let, let Jesus, as it were, stare us in the face through the text. Ask us this probing question. Never mind what everybody else says about me. Who do you say that I am? May God find in our hearts a true, humble confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Son of the living God. Let's pray.
Oh God, we know that the Bible and Christianity teaches that Jesus is the Christ. We hear those two words together, Jesus Christ. We use that title frequently. We are even called Christians, Christians. But we confess that we so often have forgotten the significance of that title. And we so often, God, tend to think of you as not the living God, but the sleepy God or the faraway God. We pray that by your Spirit and your Word this morning, that you would help us to confess Jesus as Christ and Son of the living God anew in our hearts, that we might love Him as our King, our Lord, that we might not reject and resist and resent His authority and His commands, but that as He is good and gentle and kind and holy and loving and full of grace and mercy, that we would love and worship and adore and obey our King that we would enjoy now the blessing that is ours as the inheritance of the kingdom as we submit to Him, even in a world that hates Him, hates His laws, hates Your ways. We pray that we would stand fast for Christ, though this world reject Him. May it be so, we pray for His honor and glory in the church. Amen.